Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together we research and break down complex issues facing our society. Uh, We bring you those breakdowns every other week. And we promise to bring you honest analysis backed by research and maybe a little humor. A lot of things we cover are pretty heavy topics, so we recommend getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. So first, though, we'd definitely like to thank everybody that tuned in to our first episode. If you haven't already, please be sure to listen to part one of this series on systemic racism. It will not only provide a lot of context for this conversation, but will probably illuminate a lot about systemic racism in the U.S.'s criminal justice system uh, that you may not know. We especially want to thank our single listener from Sweden. I don't know who you are, but I appreciate the international reach. Uh, (laughs) We're happy you're here. So this this week, we're going to do a a short summary of what we hit on last time, um, just the high notes. And then I've got a correction to issue before we move on to talk about more systemic racism. That's right. This time with respect to housing and the various ways discrimination has appeared in the housing market. This is a massive topic with many different facets. We cannot cover all of it. I'm going to tell you up front, we have condensed it down as much as we can, but this is still going to be another hefty one. And we're just by virtue of the fact that there's so much here, we're going to leave something out. We've tried to get the important points in here. If you think that something needs to be talked about that we left out, again, as always, let us know. We have our email address, firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com, and uh, we'll give you that at the end as well. So uh, we hope you're ready. Welcome to our fireside. All right, so last week we talked about systemic racism, and we covered a bit of the history of racist ideas and how they're created to inform and justify and uphold these racist systems. So we covered the difference between individual, implicit, systematic, and systemic racism. If you are confused on those subjects, we highly recommend you go back and take a listen to episode one. And then we talked about the fact that systemic or structural racism does not require racial animus. In other words, you don't have to have overtly racist feelings to be complicit in systemic racism. It just is a part of the system. And if you participate, you're complicit. So far, we haven't had any emails (laughs) with questions. Not surprising. But we did have a couple of conversations with people that had some Uh, questions for us or things that they would like us to do. Robin actually created a Facebook page to handle one of those things. You can find it by searching Fireside Breakdowns. And you want to explain what they're going to find on that Facebook page? uh, Absolutely. We had some feedback that people wanted even more context to what we were talking about, which is great, but we're pretty sure that you guys are not going to listen to us talk for more than two hours. And it's really hard to describe a timeline in a podcast. So we decided to make a Facebook page that we can use to share resources that we find, some good context. If there's a book that we're reading that we're finding particularly informative, we can share it with you guys. And that's also a great place for you to leave us feedback, ask us any questions, et cetera, et cetera. We also received some feedback that our last episode leaned pretty hard left to the ideological left. I think in part that's because both of us are pretty liberal in our private lives we, as any human being, would struggle to do. It's going to be hard to divest ourselves from our ideology in in this podcast or in anything. We're trying. We're trying to stick to just the research. 
it's a fair criticism because we are trying to strive for unbiased and factual information. So we've really been struggling with how to correct that because we brought it up in episode zero, the introduction, uh, topics we cover are going to seem liberal or conservative or whatever ideology simply because of their nature. In order to talk about systemic racism, we chose to start from the assumption that systemic racism is in fact real. When the idea has been criticized from the right as being made up or exaggerated, that choice, the choice to come from it from a position of it existing, that in and of itself is, is biased. We understand that, but we also don't think we could accomplish what we set out to do if we didn't do that. Tackling it from another angle, I think, would restrict us in a way that we weren't comfortable with. So as part of the series, we already have an episode planned that is going to cover alternate theories and arguments against the theory of systemic racism. And we are going to try to address counter arguments to this, but we're not going to do that in each individual standalone episode on systemic racism because it would more than double the length of each one. It's just, there's so much guys. So we're, we are trying. It's one of the thornier problems we have encountered as we bring this up and get it running. It is my personal opinion, however, that if we had delayed in favor of trying to use another tactic, we wouldn't have ever started this podcast to begin with. We had to start at some point, and so that's what we did. We ask again for your patience as we get our feet under us on this and, and figure out how to best approach this. And I personally doubly ask your patience uh, after listening to the sound issues from the original version of episode one. Uh, it has been a long, long time since my sound editing classes, and I'm not a professional, so the old muscle memory needs some time to get back into the groove to figure out what all these new buttons do. This episode shouldn't suffer from the same problem, hopefully, <laughs> but I have uploaded episode one again with a new mix. It should be a little more even, a little more level now. It's not going to be perfect, but I definitely made it more listenable if uh, that turned you off. And you had to shut it off last time, which I fully understand and apologize for. But I also want to issue a correction. We talked a little bit about felon voting rights in our last episode. I said something along the lines of uh, no state uh, has can a felon vote in prison. Uh, it's not quite as simple as I thought it was, uh, which just goes to show that I can't rely on my degree that is six years old at this point because stuff has changed. <laughs> So importantly, in Maine and Vermont, felons never lose their right to vote, even while they're incarcerated. In 16 states and the District of Columbia, felons lose their voting rights only while incarcerated and receive automatic restoration upon release. In 21 states, felons lose their voting rights during incarceration and for a period of time after, typically while they're on parole or probation. Voting rights are automatically restored after this time period. Former felons may also have to pay any outstanding fines, fees, or restitution before their rights are restored as well. And then in 11 states, felons lose their voting rights indefinitely for some crimes or require a governor's pardon in order for voting rights to be restored. They may also face an additional waiting period after completion of the sentence, including parole and probation, 
or require additional action before their voting rights can be restored. So just a little bit of a quick breakdown on that, get it a little more fleshed out from my uh, original comments on the matter. That is uh, definitely more complicated than I think I thought it was. Me too, (laughs) obviously. But hey, you know. Okay, so as we get into this conversation on systemic racism outside the criminal justice system, I think it's personally absolutely necessary that we start with systemic racism in housing. The effects of racist housing systems on people of color have been devastating. And in my opinion, they lay the foundation for so much of the circumstantial disadvantage that people of color experience today. Um, For example, we know that owning a home is one of the most significant means of building generational wealth. And we know that housing and the systems surrounding it directly impact educational opportunities, transportation, and access to jobs. So it only makes sense that we start with that foundational level. Right. I think you have to understand this because it informs everything else that we're going to talk about. We talked last episode about racist ideas and how those are the foundation for a lot of racist systems. So there are a few racist ideas that really underpin the racist land and housing systems that have affected people of color. And I'm really excited for this episode because we didn't get to talk much about systemic racism and Native Americans in the last episode, but they do feature heavily in our discussion on housing and land systems because they have been so incredibly affected by those racist systems. One racist idea that undergirded the encroachment of English settlers into Native American territories was that of divine providence. For generations before the arrival of the colonists in North America, the lack of faith in a Christian God had been used to justify a host of horrific behaviors. So it's only logical then that many colonists believed that the forcible removal of natives, their deaths by disease, and their acceptance of unfair payments for their sacred lands, despite the fact that in reality, these Native Americans did not actually understand the agreements that they were entering into, was an indication of, quote, the wonderful and unsearchable providence of God in the whole affair of driving out the natives and planting colonies of Europeans and churches of Christians in place of the heathenism and barbarity. There are tons of examples of this kind of rhetoric throughout early colonial literature. The governor of North Carolina in 1707 said, uh, I shall give you some farther eminent remark hereupon, and especially in the first settlement of Carolina, where the hand of God was eminently seen in thinning the Indians to make room for the English. There's also this idea that the indigenous inhabitants of America didn't actually count. There is a quote, it's, there's some part of the land that was not purchased, neither was there need that it should. It was vacuum domicilium, and so might be possessed by virtue of God's grant to mankind. Referencing Genesis 1.28 is this idea that because nobody had ever really purchased the land or laid claim to it, it was free real estate. So a lot of settlers didn't feel any sort of moral conflict about taking advantage of indigenous people because God had provided this land to them. And if the natives didn't know any better, then that was just God's providence. So this really plays into this idea of manifest destiny. You've probably heard that phrase if you were 
uh, in American school systems. I remember being taught about Manifest Destiny probably in fifth grade or sooner. It was this idea that it was not only justified, but inevitable that the United States would expand through the entirety of North America. I remember thinking at the time that this seemed right and good because I was a child and the USA was the best thing to ever happen. And I don't think it was ever mentioned or questioned that this would naturally come at the expense of the indigenous people. Like I said, I was in fifth grade and these moral conundrums weren't exactly a part and parcel of our education, but I definitely, I definitely remember that we didn't necessarily talk about how that would impact. Or if we did, then it was always presented as being either a benefit to the native populations or a, a fight with, I don't know, um, the best way to put this, but this idea that we were helping them for their own good, whether they knew it or not, yeah. seemed to be what, what we were being taught. Yeah, I, I grew up in a, a northern, much more liberal school district, um, and even still, we were taught that it was more of a partnership, that it was more working together for the benefit of the Native Americans, and that when there were conflicts, the settlers were, you know, fighting for what was right and what was good and for the best interest of the Native populations. But that also leads us directly into the next racist idea, which is the desire to civilize and assimilate Native Americans. So it's directly in line with that divine providence thought process. The English settlers believed that it was their right and their responsibility to turn the natives away from their barbarous practices and convert them into a more civilized lifestyle and religion like that of the English. In reality, the settlers wanted the land and the resources. Like we talked about with racist ideas, a lot of times they are developed and propagated to justify behaviors rather than as the cause of behaviors. So they wanted the land and the resources, and it was then necessary to theorize these tribal societies as fatally and racially inferior, while emphasizing the ability of Indian individuals to leave their society and join these non-Indian English societies for their own betterment. This was reflected later on by this thought process of something we touched on last episode, the inability of whites and blacks to live together equally in the same space. Throughout history, even the most progressive thinkers refused to entertain the idea that blacks and whites could live together peaceably or equitably. Their inherent differences, most believe, were, were too vast to allow both races to coexist. They're just too different. Uh, we talked about this a little. President Lincoln himself, the great emancipator, did not believe in the equality of races. A quote from him is, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, 
While they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And as I, much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Which, I mean, pretty much sums it up. I don't think you can make it any clearer than he did. He did not think it was possible for people of color and white people to live equally in the same physical area or society. And that if they must live together, then whites must assume the position of the superior, uh, both socially and, uh, I don't know, ethically, morally, however you want to spin that. Yeah, absolutely. And and part of the reason that, that that was such a pervasive thought was that there was this perceived danger from black bodies. Many white people believed that they could not possibly coexist with blacks because blacks posed an inherent danger to them, whether that was just an inherent danger, they were just more animalistic, more given to those crimes of passion and violence, or whether it was because after the Civil War, especially, they were afraid of a a turning of tables of sorts, that the blacks in the South would come together and rise up and then exert over them the same dominion that they had exerted over the black slaves. So there's a a really troublesome, but also illuminating quote that I found in a book that I was perusing the other day. It's called The Old South, and it's a collection of essays written in 1892 by a man named Thomas Nelson Page, who wanted to ensure that the real and true history of the South and the real and true cause of the Civil War was well represented And he's in this section discussing the wrong perception of the danger to black people from whites. He instead says that the physical peril from the overcrowding among our people of an ignorant and hostile race is not more real than this which threatens our moral rectitude, but it is more apparent. There was this idea that blacks were so ignorant and so violent that they just inherently posed a threat to the whites that they were around. You see this thought process still today. What about black-on-black crime? As if black people are inherently more violent by virtue of being black. Exactly. That is just... if 20% of the population didn't commit 80% of the crime, we wouldn't have these problems. I hear that repeated over and over and over again. And it's just the same repetition of that rhetoric. Yeah, that's all it is. It's the, the... great-grandchild of this original thought of African-Americans are violent people. That book, you actually got that from a library because your, your friend turned you on to that? Is that right? Yeah. So I have a, a friend whose husband is, he works at a local university library. I think he's actually the head librarian and they were clearing out a bunch of books and she brought me a ton of them knowing that we were working on this podcast and this yes. is one of them. So I'm really excited to have it in my collection as right. strange I as that sounds. And it just goes to show you that we will use what you bring to us. <laughs> so yes. uh, we are grateful to, to have that already. It's wonderful having those, those primary contemporary sources that we can pull from when we talk about these things. Generally, the more uncomfortable they make you, the more valuable they are to the conversation. So speaking of uncomfortable, Ooh, boy. another... Another example of this rhetoric is in one of the most lauded films in American history, uh, 1915's Birth of a Nation. It was 
uh, revered as as the hallmark of American cinema. It launched what we know as modern Hollywood. And it the film opens with a line from the director ensuring the audience that this is a historical representation of the Civil War and Reconstruction period. And it is not meant to reflect on any race or people of today, which as, as I read that, all I could think was, oh my goodness, I could, I can totally see that disclaimer on something that would be produced today. Like now where I'm not trying to make a comment about any race or group of people, but, and then the film goes on to spend a majority of its three hour runtime detailing the laziness, criminality, and dangerousness of the newly freed blacks in the South. In one major plot development, a crazed black man who is acting more like a gorilla than a human, at times running on all fours, chases after a white woman until she throws herself from a cliff, absolutely distraught that she's going to be ravaged. And then at the end of the film, the KKK rushes in to save the South from rule by heathenist blacks and restore peace and order. Again, that that fear that the blacks were going to come together and then exert that same dominion on the whites in the South. So yes, the film led to the birth of what we know as Hollywood, but it also led to the modern iteration of the KKK as a vigilante force in the South. That organization had all but disappeared at that point. And then as they came rushing in as the heroes at the end of that movie, it galvanized that organization into the force that it was for the next 60 years. Yeah. And I mean, and still to this day, we saw them, I can't believe I'm saying this in 2020, but we saw them marching We've seen them marching for the past couple of, within the past couple of months, we have seen people actively displaying their association to the KKK and to the Nazis and marching in America. I don't know. It just, it's it blows my mind. It's, it's depressing. And the fact that you know, we can trace it back to a movie portraying the KKK as heroes is just all the more frustrating. And I don't mind taking a stance on this one. If you're part of the KKK and listening to this, you suck and you're a terrible person. <laughs> you should listen to this. Educate yourself. Get good. Get get good, scrub. So rewinding a bit, it's interesting that we still see these sort of echoes of the 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 black person being extra violent and we still see it today it's a little more subtle i guess but we still see it in 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 hollywood we still see it in our children's shows even one movie that comes to mind is (laughs) the movie that doesn't exist the last airbender and if you know anything about the the show that it's based off of the show is this very culturally diverse cast and story that pulls from all sorts of especially asiatic cultures but in the movie interestingly the good guys are somehow all white and the bad guys who are all supposed to be related are various shades of black and brown and that's not the only movie that has done that it's not infrequent that you see a bad guy being portrayed by a person of color And it used to be a lot worse, but even if you go back in Looney Tunes and older cartoons, you see these negative stereotypes being used to communicate to the audience something that is not necessarily explicitly said, right? So you've got 
in Dumbo, you have the minstrel crows. They play a huge part in in one of the scenes in that story, but they're really a harmful stereotype of of black people and is calling out this idea of a minstrel show. And that sort of provides the context for that scene. And you see it in like Looney Tunes where you have stereotypical black people being portrayed uh, at the, the mammy archetype, which is this sort of complete stripping of a black woman of all characteristics except for being somebody that takes care of people, right? You see that in Tom and Jerry is they've got a couple of episodes at the very least that have that sort of archetype displayed. And so we still struggle to this day. It's not as bad as it was. And we're beginning to see this slow transition towards having our good guys being played by people other than, you know, white guys <laughs> and our bad guys being played by a more diverse cast and and mixing up who gets to be assigned the good role, the white hat, and who gets to be assigned the black hat in our movies. That is a cowboy rest western reference. The good guys wore white hats and the bad guys wore black hats. That is not a skin color <laughs> reference. So it's just it's fascinating to me as, as somebody approaching it from a performance perspective uh, with my background that we still see these things today in our entertainment and we don't take the time necessarily to deconstruct what it means to see people of color constantly portraying the bad guys or pe white people constantly portraying the good guys um, or having a film where it's all one or the other it's just it's very interesting to me so as we were researching the explicit or systematic racist phase of housing programs and land programs in America, which if you remember from last episode, we almost always move directly from racist ideas to explicit or systematic racism in policy. One thing that really, really stood out to me as I was researching was that the policies that led to the systemic situation we see today are a combination of advantage and disadvantage. So it's one thing to programmatically advantage one group, but then it's another to simultaneously and programmatically disadvantage other groups. So you have this situation where one group takes three steps forward and the other takes four steps back. And what we see as we review the research is that it created a significant enough gap that the effects are still staggering today. Right. I think one of the, unfortunately, one of the easiest places to see that gap in the modern day is a reservation. Native Americans have been consistently taken advantage of by the United States government. Historically, it was, I mean, we've all heard of things like the Trail of Tears, which I don't think you can justify through any modern logic or any modern mentality. It was horrible. And that's only one little corner of what the United States government actually did to the indigenous populations over time. As we said, when the colonies were first being established, the colonials didn't really consider Native Americans as people worthy of consideration. They, they just took from them. And then that mentality, of course, that went on to inform the United States government as it was formed because the government was formed by these former colonials who got their ideas from everybody else who were sharing these ideas. Now, yes, they had some input from 
great philosophers of the time, and I don't want to say that they were just lay people who, who formed the country, but you can't separate them from the environment in which they grew up and built their idea of a better country. So in the early part of the 1800s, a significant focus was placed on separating settlers from their native neighbors. So throughout the, the early relationship of the, the colonists and the settlers and the Native Americans, there was a back and forth and really as long as the, the settlers were able to acquire the resources that they needed from their native neighbors, um, there wasn't a whole lot of problem there. There was conflict here and there throughout, um, but especially beginning in about 1812 with the War of 1812 and, and many Native Americans fighting on the sides of the British, there was a, a very large focus then placed on separating the Native Americans from the white settlers. And so in the early decades of the century, removal of the Native American tribes to the unsettled territory west of the Mississippi was the preferred federal approach. But by the end of the Civil War, however, the focus of that separatist idea then shifted again. And as non-Indian settlement of the trans-Mississippi West got larger, the federal policy shifted from just the removal of tribes to the Indian Territory to the isolation of the tribes in pockets of land carved out of those territories. So they didn't get all of the land west. They, they then suddenly got these little pockets, um, these reservations with the goal of separating the whites and the Native Americans to reduce the tension and then obviously promoting the reclamation and advancement of Native Americans and educating them on the importance of civilization and agriculture. And we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about how those lands dwindled away piece by piece. Um, but it's important to note going forward that these lands are still held in trust by the federal government. Um, and very important aspects of resource management and development are still controlled by the government. So we, we went from natives in their homelands to natives west of the Mississippi to natives in small pockets to natives in small pockets controlled by the federal government. As they were working through this period of moving them to the reservations and then isolating those reservations and then making them smaller, it became apparent at least through a historical perspective, that the next move would be uh, something called an allotment plan. So the focus in the 1880s shifted from segregation of Native Americans to assimilation of Native Americans. The integration that assimilation aligned with the same idea of converting and civilizing Native Americans and then culminated with the American citizenship of Native Americans. So basically, it wasn't enough to have Native Americans present in a society. The only way that it was acceptable or deemed acceptable would be if they became European, quote unquote, if they basically gave up their own culture and took on the culture that was deemed acceptable for them to have. That, my friends, is called normativity, and we could do an entire episode just on that one word. I think an entire episode would be actually <laughs> a very generous underestimation of how much time we would need to cover normativity and its impacts and how it works and how insidious it can be. So again, if we remember that one of the goals of the settlers was to 
take as much land as they possibly could and own those resources for themselves, whether it was because of divine providence or just selfish greed. As we shifted to an allotment plan for the Native Americans, what that meant was small parcels of land could be allotted to each Native American person who qualified. And then all of that extra land was then considered surplus and then open for settlement by the whites moving west. The Dawes Act of 1887 allowed Congress to break up these rather large reservations into individual plots of land that would be given to each Native person that qualified. In return, it was expected that they would then learn to farm the land and that the act of farming would contribute heavily to their civilization by showing them the value of hard work. White settlers had this perception of everyone who was not them, that they were inherently lazy and and didn't enjoy hard work. So hard work seemed to be the cure, according to them, for most of these things. Man, if that doesn't still sound familiar. Pervasive cultural narratives. Mm -hmm. The size of each plot varied over time and by the status of the individual. So uh, the head of a household may get 160 acres, whereas a, a young person or a child may get something closer to 80. But in general, it was between 80 and 160 acres per Native American person. But the deeds of trust to this land were to be held by the United States government for 25 years, during which the Native landowner was expected to assimilate to agriculture, to Christianity, and to full citizenship in the United States. In other words, you have 25 years to become like us, and then we'll give you some land. So does that mean if, like, was there some sort of objective standard that was used? Did they come back and they're like, oh, yes, you scored a 73 out of 100 on the like us assessment, and so here's your deed? Or, I mean, how it seems so ephemeral to me that, You've got 25 years to get it. Good luck. Well, and this is where things start to get really interesting because there were overseers. There were people whose job it was to go out and and travel these lands and and speak with the natives and see how they were doing as far as their assimilation and their hard work was going. But as time went on and the demand for that land got greater. Hold on. Let me guess. The goalposts moved. Just a lot. Just a lot. So there was an act called the Burke Act, and it amended this time period um, and determined that the Secretary of the Interior could award deeds to individuals at any point at which they were determined to be competent of managing their own affairs. So if at any point the Secretary of the Interior or those overseers said, oh, this person, they've got it covered, they could then be awarded the deed to that land, which sounds like an incredibly positive turn for Native Americans. It makes it sound like, oh, you don't have to wait 25 years. You could, oh, you got it in two weeks. Here's your land. Congratulations. Exactly. But really what happened is that that proved to be a significant factor in the loss of an incredible amount of Native land. Because once the deeds were transferred to these allottees, right, once the Native Americans had full possession of their land, those lands were considered taxable and alienable, which means that they could be sold or separated from their owner by sale or other means. They could be traded. They could be lost in a card game. They could be taken as restitution for a crime committed. 
they were inherently separable from their owner. The person. Which means if for some reason the native landowner now with the deed couldn't pay their new taxes on their 160 acres, they would be subject to forfeiture. Exactly. Or um, as research from the far future has shown us, if many of these Native American landowners did not actually even understand the contracts that they were being entered into because these overseers decided that they were ready to take full possession of their land, that land could then be separated from them. So a 1908 survey showed, and and granted, this is just over 20 years since the Dawes Act began this process, not even enough time for these full 25-year deeds to play out. 60% of those who were issued these premature land patents then lost their land. By 1913, even more pressure was placed on the Indian office to grant these patents, which which meant that Native Americans who had not ever applied for them did not want them or were not even capable of understanding them, received them. And then surveys showed that up to 90% of those people who were awarded deeds under that expanded policy lost their land. Oh, but wait, there's more. Oh, great. I was almost... Uh, out of despair. Continue. So we expanded that policy one more time, which meant that automatic patents were then awarded to those who had 50% or less Native American heritage, but were still living in the Native reservation lands, regardless of their desire for or understanding of them. So basically, if you had 49% Native American heritage, you were automatically awarded one of these land grants, whether or not you wanted or understood it. So I'm absolutely stunned that the government would use bureaucratic bureaucratic methodology to grant people who didn't really have a concept of land ownership, ownership of land, and then take it away from them. I am absolutely surprised. You should be You can be probably shocked. hear it. Yeah. So basically what happened is that thousands of Indian landowners were disposed of their lands either through voluntary sales or fraudulent sales. Many others lost their lands at sheriff sales for non-payment of taxes or for other liens. And by the end of the allotment era, two-thirds of all the land allotted, approximately 27 million acres, had passed from Native American ownership into not Native American ownership. 27 million acres of native land. Mm. I honestly don't know. I I was shocked. Yeah, I'm shocked, you know, and I don't know how you even respond to, to that. This, I think, goes to show one of the big problems, wider problems that Americans as a society face is that we kind of have this perception that if it's legal, it's moral. But all of these land seizures were legal, right? But I don't think anybody could argue that they were moral. I, I, I certainly couldn't. I don't think you can hand somebody something that they don't understand. And then when they fail to utilize it properly, quote unquote, you just take it away because, oh, you didn't uphold your end of the bargain that you didn't even know existed or had no conception of how to fulfill it. 
Anyway, I... But I digress. So, around the same time that this was happening, we're going to see the development in cities, in non-native lands, of something called redlining. And I'm sure that if you have been paying even the slightest attention to, oh, the world, you have encountered this term, even if you don't know what it specifically means. So in the 1930s, there was an organization called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. And it worked in partnership by the United States government to create a, a policy that sort of evaluated land. So they issued maps of the major population centers in the United States at the time, and those maps were color-coded. They had four areas. The first one was A, it was considered the best area, and it was green. The second was B, it was still desirable, and on the map it was coded blue. There was C, which was considered definitely declining, and it was coded yellow on the map. And then finally, I think you know where this is going, D which was considered hazardous and was coded red. So thus a literal red line on a map would split a city, a suburb, a parcel of land uh, between something that was considered desirable and worth investing in and something that was considered hazardous and not worth investing in or dangerous to invest in. We're going to put a link in the show notes to a digital archive of what the Homeowners Loan Corporation color-coded map looked like. You can click on it. I'm going to warn you up front, it is explicitly racist. It is, doesn't even, it like, it doesn't even try to hide the fact. And if that is something that would upset you to read about, I would recommend not looking at the map too closely because it is pretty bad. The, the notes in it specifically are what's bad. For example, the town that I grew up in, uh, it has a neighborhood that I am incredibly familiar with because I was there. <laughs> and uh, it is listed on this, on this map, again, from the 1930s, it's listed as hazardous. The reasoning behind it being listed that way is that it is full of... I, mean, I said this word earlier. I'm going to interrupt myself for a second. I don't like saying these words. They make me uncomfortable. I, I, Robin and I have gone back and forth about whether or not I should say it and how I should say it. And I feel like it's important to use the words that were originally used because they provide context. So when I say these things, it is, an, it is explicitly a quote. So just keep that in mind. I hate saying it. The, this area that I grew up in, it was listed as hazardous because it is full of, quote, Negro houses that are, quote, are the usual run of such, many being cheap shacks. Then goes on to list the, quote, detrimental influences, quote, for the neighborhood, one of which is a, a liberal sprinkling of Negos. It was spelled that way, and I'm going to say it so that their shame lives on. They misspelled their own word, their own bad word. And it's interesting to note, to me at least, that... The current division of poverty in the city, as in today, with the north side of the city being considered the, the quote-unquote poor side, and the south side being the affluent and wealthy families, seems to be a direct continuation of the assessment of the Homeowners Loan Corporation. 
the map is pretty split along the same divides that are reflected today. And we'll actually get into the science behind supporting why that is a little later on. So what this map did is mortgage lenders would reference it when they were determining who to give a mortgage to. It encouraged lending in predominantly white and more affluent areas, the A or the B, and then discouraged lending in areas with residents of color in the C or D categories, especially persons then termed Negroes. In the case of New York City, Hulk, the abbreviation for the Homeowners Loan Corporation, Hulk notes for areas rated D included such statements as there is a steady infiltration of Negro, Spanish, and Puerto Ricans into the area. Population is very unstable and relief load is heavy. In the Bronx, it said uh, colored infiltration, a definitely adverse influence on neighborhood desirability, although Negroes will buy properties at fair prices and usually rent rooms. So these Hulk guides, these Hulk grades codified legal discriminatory policies, which were only finally outlawed in the 1960s. Wait, the, the 1960s? Yeah. Yeah, that would be about 60 years ago. So this, I mean, this even impacted our veterans trying to use the GI Bill. So Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, often called the magic carpet to the middle class, it was considered to be one of the most effective programs to support the growth and wealth and stability for middle-class America. So between 1944 and 1952, 2.5 million mortgages were issued under that program and backed by the FHA, the Fair Housing Act. However, black veterans were essentially blocked from taking advantage of that benefit. They were excluded from white suburbs where new homes, schools, and jobs were located. Banks would not make reasonable loans on homes in urban black neighborhoods because of the Hulk map, because of redlining. Even if they did somehow manage to obtain a mortgage, the rates were significantly less favorable and even insurance premiums became prohibitive to the people who wanted to own houses in those neighborhoods. So again, we're seeing an example of things being explicitly legal, but absolutely not being moral. It's completely legal for the homeowners loan corporation to make these maps and encourage banks to invest in A and B areas. And it's perfectly legal at that point in time for blacks to be excluded from white suburbs. And so you have these black veterans who have served their country in one of the most atrocious wars that humanity has ever seen. And they come home and they can't use this benefit that arguably is the reason that we have such an expansive middle class among white Americans. This isn't to say that black people couldn't move, that African Americans were just locked into whatever area that they lived in. It just made it more difficult. Even in the face of these challenges, after World War II, the demographic landscape of the United States, it, it continued a transformation. There was a great migration during the Great Depression. Um, some of you may have read Steinbeck and uh, The Grapes of Wrath. You have my sympathies. It, there was another one, the second Great Migration, that happened after World War II. And it is it had similar motivations to the first one in that many of the people were moving due to oppressive laws that had 
kept them from succeeding. Many of the oppressive laws that had prompted the earlier migration remained on the books, and violence against African Americans, including mob violence and lynching, which we talked about in our last episode, actually increased in the early 20th century. So although the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s succeeded in striking down the worst of the Jim Crow legislation, um, African Americans continued to migrate out of the South until the 1970s. They largely moved north and to the west. You see large populations of uh, former Southern blacks in cities like Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle. They witness a substantial increase. And in the South, for the people who stayed there, the migration was largely from rural areas to urban population centers like New Orleans and Atlanta. This urbanizing tendency resumed across regions and ethnic groups in the late 20th century even. So as cities became more ethnically diverse, many of the white city dwellers fled <laughs> to more spacious and more, more ethnically homogenous suburbs. It's accurate to say that racial prejudices played a major role in white flight. That can be measured, it has been studied. It is not the entirety of the reasons. There were other motivators like seeking out the positive aspects of suburban lives, like, like a favorable tax regime and better funded school systems. But as with everything that we've talked about, it's an intersection of, of facts and different variables that kind of combine to cause a, an event that isn't necessarily as innocent as each individual component. As we're talking about white flight, we also have to consider that where the white people went, the jobs also went. There was a young economist named John Kane in 1961 who came up with a hypothesis that he called spatial mismatch. Um, and that holds that greater distance between the neighborhoods in which blacks live and the neighborhoods in which blue collar jobs are located impact black employment opportunity by affecting the dissemination of information about employment opportunities and increasing the cost of transportation to the jobs. So the further away blacks live from the jobs, the less likely they are to fill those jobs because either they don't hear about them or it costs them too much to get to that job, whether they own a car or they're taking public transportation. And so this hypothesis argues that that this is in part attributable to there being fewer jobs per worker in or near black areas than in white areas. Because of this residential segregation by race, it's, it is reasonable then to at least expect there to be some discrimination in the job market because of the discrimination in the housing markets. It's important to note that there are other people out there who hypothesize that, that the racial discrimination in hiring or that just the makeup of a location where a job is located, regardless of whether or not there was active segregation, also influence the racial makeup of people doing the job. Another way that we can, we can get those contrary theories in there, not everybody agrees with the spatial mismatch hypothesis, but it has been very influential in research and modeling when it comes to the segregation and job migration and uh, wage disparities between blacks yeah. and whites. And it's likely to be a combination of factors. Uh, like we say, we talk about intersectionality a lot. I think it would be foolish to ignore the idea of distance being a limiting factor to people 
getting a job in a specific specific area. Most people try to live relatively close to where they work or at least within a certain commute time of where they work. So I think any everybody can identify with, wow, I can't live there or I can't work there because the commute to where I work is going to take forever. Right. I mean, <laughs> like... I once had a 13 mile commute and out here in Northern Virginia, that could take you five hours. And it in fact did take me five hours once. And that would be the day that I broke my lease and moved to within two miles of my job. And it still took 30 minutes sometimes to get to work. That's yeah. insane. I, so, I will never complain about traffic again. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was bad. But I mean, it's not I think an unreasonable hypothesis, even if it's not fully supported or even if there are counter arguments to it, it's not an unreasonable hypothesis to factor in commute times and distances and how that would negatively impact a culture that is only being allowed or only being lent money due to these uh, homeowners loans, the Hulks, for certain neighborhoods. Right. So I think I think when we are talking about discrimination in, in housing and systemic racism, we've got to talk about the widespread destruction of black wealth. Um, we mentioned it a little bit last episode when we talked about the Tulsa race massacre and the Greenwood district, but it's, it's not something that we can ignore because it wasn't just a one-off situation. There haven't, there hasn't been a lot of research done on the economic effects of these, massacres, this destruction that happened in these wealthy black communities throughout the early 20th century. But some researchers did estimate the total property damage in the Greenwood riot to be close to $200 million in today's dollars. Uh, More than 1,200 black homes were destroyed, leaving all of those families homeless. And not only that, businesses that they owned were also destroyed. And this didn't just happen in Tulsa. We talked about Memphis Last episode, we talked about Tulsa, and then there's Rosewood in Florida, and there are areas in Mississippi and Arkansas and in Georgia. This was not a one-off event, um, and this kind of segregation-based violence is believed to have heavily suppressed the success of Black communities across the country, whether or not the violence took place in that community. Of course. I mean, when you hear about entire neighborhoods being destroyed, it is necessarily going to uh, chill the entrepreneur in anybody, I think. Even if you did have the money to start a business or build a house, knowing that your house could be destroyed because you know you just don't look like the people that you live relatively close to, you're not going to try to spend that money. That's just a guess, obviously. We don't have a lot of research to go off of on exactly why those things would would impact economic development but it seems reasonable to me i wouldn't want to <laughs> i wouldn't want to spend money in a society that would kill me at just as soon as take my money exactly there's a, a really interesting study out there i will try to remember to link it in the show notes that looks at patents intellectual property patents filed by black innovators and you can see in the research that whenever there are these race-based violence episodes, the rate of patents applied for drops sharply. And it corresponds startlingly with the entrepreneurial development of the black community. But if you think about homeownership being a huge factor in generational wealth and 
in economic stability. And then you think about the fact that 1,200 homes just in one community were destroyed and the opportunity for that generational wealth was taken. It's, it's, That's going to have a, an exponential impact because yeah. those people, their homes were destroyed, which means that they didn't have as much to leave to their children, which means that their children had to start off probably with less than they had started off with. And it basically resets the cycle for 1,200 families and who knows how many actual people that is. Yeah. And then, so we're talking about the, the relationship between disadvantage and advantage. Did you ever see the Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman movie Far and Away? I have not actually seen that one. I can't say that I have. Okay. It is a, an absolutely brilliant 1990s epic sweeping movie that follows the life of Tom Cruise, a young Irish scrappy fighter who comes to America and decides that he is then going to go and grab his stake of land. And Nicole Kidman is a wealthy young woman from a good family and she runs away to be with him and they homestead out in the American West. Absolutely classic. If you're looking for a really cheesy movie to watch, I'm always looking for cheesy movies to watch. (laughs) But, but the story that that depicts is is one that directly relates to something called the Homestead Act, 1863, which basically, when we're talking about all of that land west of the Mississippi that the United States wanted available for white settlers, this is where it went. So we took the land from. Native Americans. And then we said, hey, everyone who is a citizen of the United States, if you are 21 years or older, you have never waged war against the United States, which was a direct slap in the face to anyone who was part of the Confederacy. (laughs) Um, If you are willing to pay $18 in fees, which is roughly equivalent to $360 in today's money, and you promise to improve the land with buildings, wells, and crops over a five-year period, we will give you a chunk of land. The Homestead Act, according to the National Archives, gave about 1.5 million white claimants land in the United States. About 1.5 million families benefited from this program. But it's important to note that these land grants were First, only open to United States citizens, which meant that for the first three years of the program, if you were black, you were excluded because you were not a citizen. If you were Native American, you were excluded because you were not a United States citizen. And then also you have to factor in that many black Americans were forced into yearly labor contracts immediately after emancipation because of the vagrancy laws and black codes that we talked about in the last episode. Um, If they couldn't show proof of work for the next year, they could be thrown in jail and then leased back out to plantation owners. So many of them entered very quickly into year-long labor contracts. So what we have here is a situation in which any white American citizen who can scrounge up about $18 can go out and work some land and have a nice piece of land to benefit their family for the rest of their life. But you have a situation in which Black Americans, Native Americans are very unable to take advantage of that same program. So only about 3,500 Black land claimants and researchers aren't quite sure how many people in total that meant. They think it could be up to about 15,000 Black Americans 
were able to benefit from the Homestead Act program. So again, you have approximately one and a half million white families who benefit from the Homestead Act and have land that they can pass down generationally and farms that they can turn profit on and begin to build wealth with. And then you have about 3,500 black families who are able to take advantage of that. And as far as I know, that was not an option for Native American families. Yeah, gosh. So a lot of a lot of what we've been talking about, okay, all of what we've been talking about is something that's happened in history in the 1800s, the 1890s, the 1930s, the 1960s and 70s. But it there are still things that happen today that are actually explicitly racist. So one of those which kind of set me back on my heels whenever I found out about this was that even to this day, there are increased interest rates and fees for black indigenous people of color. It's not just something that happened hundreds of years ago. So in 2012, eight years ago, the DOJ reached a settlement with Wells Fargo, resulting in more than $175 million in relief. The United States complaint alleged that African-American and Hispanic wholesale borrowers paid more than non-Hispanic white wholesale borrowers, and that they paid more not based on borrower risk, but because of their race or national origin. So Wells Fargo's business practice allowed its loan officers and mortgage brokers to vary a loan's interest rate and other fees uh, from the price it set based on the borrower's objective credit-related factors. So there would be a price set based on pulling your credit history, looking at your bank account, looking at your employment, um, and that would generally be what they use to determine the rates, the fees on any money that they lent you. Wells Fargo allowed their lenders, the people, the officers in charge of issuing those loans, allowed them to deviate from those suggested numbers based on that math. So it basically became a subjective and unguided pricing scheme. So it resulted in African-American and Hispanic borrowers paying more money for these loans. The complaint alleged that Wells Fargo was aware the fees and interest rates it was charging discriminated against African-Americans and Hispanic borrowers, but the actions it took were insufficient and ineffective in stopping it. And Wells Fargo settled this one, actually, which can't be used to determine guilt or innocence. But I think if the Department of Justice is saying we have the data to support these claims and Wells Fargo's like, you know what? We're just going to not even fight it. <sighs> Especially if you you know look at the time period, 2012, they were, and they were probably looking at loans that were issued during the housing market burst. That, we'll get into that in a little bit, but this loss of wealth can stem and has stemmed from racist policies and practices in the modern age. It still happens. And that's where we find ourselves today. You know, we have all of these systemically racist policies that have led to the loss of tribal lands and access to natural resources that have created small and underfunded Native American reservations. According to the 2010 U.S. Census, about 30% of those claiming Native heritage lived on the reservation. And 
according to the U.S. Census Bureau in 2018, nearly 26% of Native Americans were living in poverty. That's compared to 20% of Blacks and 8% for Whites. So Native Americans have the highest poverty rates in the United States. Typically, the tribal and federal governments on the reservation are the largest employers. The scarcity of jobs and the lack of economic opportunity mean that, depending on the reservation, four to eight of ten adults on the reservations are unemployed. Uh, Many households are overcrowded and earn only Social Security or disability or veterans' income. The living conditions on reservations are notoriously poor. There are 90,000 homeless or underhoused Native American families, and 30% of that housing is overcrowded. Less than 50% of it is connected to a public a public sewer, according to a 2004 report from a publication called Indian Country Today. I found that on the Council of Indian Nations website. And then in addition to that, <laughs> we're just layering and layering and layering here. Many Native Americans are living in substandard housing. So 40% of on-reservation housing is considered inadequate, according to a 2003 report from the Native American Indian Housing Council. The waiting list for tribal housing is long and overcrowding is rampant. Like most families, they won't turn away their family members or people who need a place to stay. So it's not uncommon to see three to four generations living in a two-bedroom home. And then even further diminishing the quality of that reservation housing is the absence of utilities. Most Americans take running water and telephones and electricity for granted, but many reservation families live without these luxuries. And that increases the potential for health risk, especially in the more isolated areas. And again, it's important to remember that that the lands that are occupied by these Native American reservations are owned and managed by the United States federal government. The process for development or resource development and and utilization is long and bureaucratic and has to go through many, many steps in order to, to make anything economically viable on the reservation. And what we see that has turned into is basically just pockets of destitution. I know I've as we were researching this, is going through some of the stories of people that grew up on reservations. And it is almost alien to me to imagine a, a, a Native American lawyer in this day and age who grew up in what amounts to little more than four walls and a roof with no electricity, no running water, no anything. And to rub salt in the wound, oftentimes the steps that the indigenous uh, tribes take to improve their own standing are objected to by their neighboring non-native populations. There was a native group that wanted to put a drug rehabilitation center on the reservation and they ran into some trouble. They, I don't think they could do it because the neighboring city was like, oh no, that would be bad and lead to increased drug rates or drug usage or something. And it's like, I can't think of a logical reason to stop people from getting better. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because a lot of these small reservations exist 
in very close adjacency to to other non-Native American populated cities and towns. And because there's so little development actually on the reservation, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of traffic back and forth. So those communities also do tend to have a, a heavy say in what happens on the reservation just because of that adjacency and proximity. You may have noticed in one of the statistics that Robin was talking about earlier that 26% of Native Americans are living in poverty and 20% of African Americans are living in poverty. They still struggle a great deal. And one out of every five African Americans live in poverty. And they end up concentrated in poor urban communities because that's where they can afford to live. Originally, they, there were programs that created public housing to address housing shortages in urban areas during the Great Depression and, and, and during and after World War II, and it was available to both whites and blacks. They were segregated, but as whites moved out of the urban areas and into the suburbs, that white flight that we were talking about earlier, vacancies began to fill with black families. And as the availability of well-paying jobs moved with the white families, and black families were not allowed to follow, black families could not afford to make rent. So these projects became more and more subsidized. And as you have this collection in these poor urban areas where families could not buy houses and so they rent and they end up in these public housing communities, you also end up with what has been called in recent years a food desert. So a 2009 study by the U.S. Department of Agriculture found that 23.5 million people in the United States lack access to a supermarket within a mile of their home. If you think about that, that's actually incredibly significant. How far do you travel for groceries? How far do I travel for groceries? And if I live in an urban area and I don't own a car or I have limited access to public transportation, how far am I willing to walk for fresh food for my household? A recent multi-state study found that low-income census tracts, so blocks of land as defined by the United States Census, had half as many supermarkets as the wealthy tracts of land. And another study on top of that found that 8% of African Americans live in a census tract with a supermarket compared to 31% of white Americans. It's interesting. It's something that I was actually going to bring up when you were talking about Native Americans is food deserts are a very real problem in reservations as well. I think I was reading an article where this one woman on a reservation, in order to go to the market to get food, she had to drive four hours. <laughs> you know? I, I think I can I imagine don't... which reservation that is. Yeah. Well, there and are very it, few that have four hours of drivable land <laughs> left in them. Yeah. In the Southwest, some of the distances between any towns yeah. are so significant. I can't imagine having to go four hours to get groceries. I literally walk to the store, so I definitely can't imagine that. The farthest I've the farthest I've been from a, a grocery store was when I I was in Missouri, and you know, growing up, we lived north of town. And, you know, it was like thirty minutes to get to the closest store, and that was a burden enough. So four hours is is I mean, honestly, it's unrealistic. It's it's untenable, and it is contributing to keeping people in poverty cycles. Yes. 
Kelly Bauer, who is an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, did some research and discovered that a neighborhood's income is not the only barrier to obtaining healthy food. So we talk a lot about intersectionality and how so often race and poverty intersect. But her research was pretty landmark because even when she compared communities with similar poverty rates, she discovered that Black and Hispanic neighborhoods had fewer large supermarkets and more small grocery stores than their white counterparts. And and that's not just like a small grocery store, like a small Kroger compared to a Walmart supercenter. That's like a neighborhood grocery store where you can get boxed macaroni and cheese and Cheetos and cans of soda versus a grocery store where you can get apples and fresh meat. And produce, yeah. I mean... Even controlling for poverty, minority communities had much less access to fresh food than their white but equally poor counterparts. Right. And we'll hit on this in one of our future episodes, but this is one of those factors that contributes to disparate medical outcomes for people of color versus white folks. Like, if you can't get good food, if the food that is nearby and is affordable to you is something that you can pick up at, you know, the local 7-Eleven, you're necessarily going to negatively impact your health when the majority of your diet is cheap, fast food or prepackaged, highly processed cheese puffs, things like that. A little bit ago, I talked about the explicitly racist lending practices that Wells Fargo got in trouble with. There are more systematically racist lending problems as well. A lot of black indigenous people of color will have difficulty qualifying for their loans even now. So the the best study I found for this was from 1995 and it was published by the Social Science Quarterly. It found that a black loan applicant in New Jersey was more than twice as likely to be denied loans as a white applicant despite black folks asking for smaller loans and having lower loan to income ratios. So the study actually accounted for differences in debt, in income, in credit history, and uh, quite a bit of data so that they could get the clearest picture of how race was impacting these uh, qualifications for loans. And even controlling for all of that, even controlling for income disparity and uh, credit history differences, they found that 70.6% of the gap in loan rejections could not be explained by a difference in relative characteristics of black and white borrowers, their loans, or their neighborhoods. The conclusion was reached using the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data on all home mortgage applications in New Jersey in uh, 1990. So that's quite a large study pool. So obviously this would continue into the housing market in the early 2000s. For example, if we look at Cook County, Illinois, between 2004 and 2007, Wells Fargo, again, originated more than 61,000 mortgage loans, more than 25,000 of which were made up to, or sorry, were made to minorities. So basically 41%. Of the 61,000 total loans, at least 10,000 were high-cost loans, of which more than 65% of those were made to minorities. So 
you when you break it down, you see minorities are disproportionately represented in undesirable loans and rates and fees. So at the national level, if you zoom out a little more from Cook County, uh, Wells Fargo's record was even worse. So I know, guys, folks, maybe stay away from Wells Fargo's for a while. Wells Fargo for a while. I actually have a um, Wells Fargo story of my own. I'm, I'm not surprised, honestly. A, a judge in a case involving the company actually noted that it gave three times more subprime loans to African-Americans than similarly situated white borrowers from 2004 to 2008. When the housing market bubble burst, African-Americans, Hispanics, people of color were disproportionately impacted by that because they were more likely to be upside down on their loans. They were more likely to have outrageous interest rates or a crazy fee. And thus we have a continuation of the destruction of uh, black wealth. So fun fact, when James mm. and I were trying to buy our first house in 2007, great timing, right? Oh, yeah. The first Wonderful. bank that we went to was Wells Fargo, and they tried to give us a 13% interest rate. Holy crap. It was nuts. 13%? Can you imagine? Like, we ended up upside down in that house and losing our shirts on it anyway. Yeah. But... Like, I think we were at like a 4%. 13% is worse than some credit cards. I know. That's what his dad said. His dad was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we were like, we that don't know. That is absurd. But, Wow. Yeah. yeah, great job, Wells Fargo. Yeah, the worst. <clears throat> so why don't we start? We've been talking about the systems. We've been talking about, you know, the explicitly racist systems and things that have happened and the implicitly racist systems and things that have happened. Let's talk a little bit about the outcomes, like what happens to people when they live in these situations. And then we can, um, we can wrap this up and get to the conclusion. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the most obvious outcomes of these systems that we've talked about are the obvious impacts of generational poverty. Um, right. You have two prominent groups of people with an overwhelming lack of owned assets. And we know that owned assets are a huge influencer of individual wealth and generational wealth, the wealth that you're yeah. able to pass on to your children and their children. Yeah. I mean, being able to invest in property is has always been one of those things that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to invest in property because that is a return. There's a return on that investment. I'll, I'll tackle this. There was an attorney general in Illinois. Her name was uh, Lisa Madigan. In 2012, she was speaking about the impact of the housing bubble bursting in 2008. And she says, there's an entire generation of wealth in minority communities that's been taken away because of the disproportionate impact of subprime loans. The impact of foreclosed homes isn't limited to the former homeowners either. The effects multiply and spread out and depress property values in entire communities, which make them less attractive to home buyers, which hurts the quality of schools and other public institutions, which depresses home values further and destroys local economies. It's a reinforcing cycle of dysfunction. Yes. I mean, if you're a small business owner and you, you live five blocks from the business that you built from scratch and this housing bubble bursts and you're upside down and you lose everything because your house is suddenly worthless. I mean, 
that is impacting you and then everybody who uses your store. It's impacting them and then their houses. It's all related. It's all a network. And then if we consider, too, the number of properties that were lost by minority families in that housing bubble burst um, that were then purchased by buyers who had the cash to invest in them because for in many of these cases they had to be cash only investments when the housing market was so tumultuous the people who had the assets and the equity to invest in them were very often non-minority investors so you have communities of minorities transferring into communities of non-minorities and you just continue to increase that gap right another outcome that we see are low-wage earning jobs in minority communities. We've talked about it a lot this evening, the movement of industrial and blue-collar jobs away from Black-populated urban areas into the suburbs and how that has removed many of the well-paying, consistent jobs from those areas. And there's also been a really significant shift in the availability of those remaining jobs as the economy has shifted more toward an education-based workforce, leaving those without higher education in low-wage positions. I know we're going to do an entire episode on systemic racism in the education system, but you have entire populations who have lesser access to education opportunities and a workforce that's shifting toward higher education positions, and you have entire groups of people stuck in low-wage earning positions. Right. Another impact, and we're going to make a whole episode on this one as well, um, which is health outcomes for people. Um, There are several indicators that these practices of of redlining can carry forward and have negative impacts on people today in things like their health. Um, Specifically, I'm mentioning this one here because it specifically ties uh, housing discrimination to uh, poor outcomes for health of uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, right? So a study published in June of this year, last month, analyzed uh, the births from 2013 to 2017. It looked at the birth certificate for all singleton births in New York City. The in on this The number of data points for this was 528,096 people. Wow. That is massive. That is a huge and robust uh, sample size. And it linked maternal residents at time of birth uh, by using Holt grade and current census tract social characteristics. So it looked at the old Hulk maps and then looked at the modern day census to determine where somebody lived on those old maps, basically. So the primary finding of the study was that 80 years after the Holt grades were delineated by the U.S. government, they remained associated with contemporary risk of preterm birth among singletons. Among infants born in New York City in 2013, sorry, from 2013 to 2017, singleton infants born in areas with a Holt grade D, the lowest, were both relatively and absolutely more likely to be preterm than B, C, and A. B and C exhibited an intermediate elevated risk, so a little better than D, but still an elevated risk. And then if you look at the percentage difference between A 
and D, you find a statistically significant difference. It means that what statistically significant means is that it's not a random occurrence. You can say with some amount of certainty, usually a high level of certainty, that the two things that you are comparing are related. It's not just a correlation. There is likely causation in there. So, I mean, in layman's terms, it just means that if you today live in an area that was historically considered to be hazardous, then you are more likely to have a premature baby. And it's just because of where you live physically. And that is because those areas for a very long time until the 1960s kind of carried this stigma with them so people wouldn't invest in them, which means life in that area is harder. You're under more stress living there. You're more likely to have a greater amount of struggle, which can negatively impact your pregnancy, your child. And I'm guessing you're also more likely to have a limited access to prenatal health care. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait to dig into that one. Uh, you mentioned this one under resourced educational systems. We're going to have to do a whole different program on that, but yet another outcome of these discriminatory practices. Yeah. And then over policing, we talked about that in episode one uh, quite a bit, so we won't rehash it too much here, but a disproportionate amount of police contact in minority communities versus primarily white communities. So there's still something that I've called, I've coined, I guess I coined it, covert redlining. In a study done by Mendez et al., they found evidence that contemporary redlining persists and also predicts preterm birth, just like the original redlining did. So they used loan application data from 1999 to 2004, collected as part of the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, and used that to characterize neighborhood-specific racial disparities in mortgage loan disposition in Philadelphia. And they found that there was evidence of persistent lending discrimination with differential effect by race and place. So as I was saying earlier about New Jersey, uh, this is just another study that found in Philadelphia, there is likely to be a difference in your in the loan that you receive or the terms of that loan simply because of your race. Now, all of this leads into or combines and you end up with something called gentrification. And I want to hit on this a little bit because this is actually something I was asked uh, by one of our listeners. So I told him I would do some research on it and get back to him with some information. So if you're listening, Emerson, this is for you. But I wanted to talk about it anyway. And honestly, we're probably going to end up doing an an episode on this by itself because it's a very deep and, and complicated problem. Yeah. So... Gentrification is a term that was coined by Ruth Glass. She's a British sociologist in her 1964 book, London, Aspects of Change. So gentrification is a process. It's a transformation process that usually occurs in urban neighborhoods when higher income people move in and displace lower income existing residents. The arrival of the the wealthier people leads to new economic development and an increase of property values and rent, which often makes housing unaffordable for longtime residents. The actual 
process of gentrification, you neighborhoods experience it when there's this massive influx of investment and changes to the built, the existing buildings and parks and everything, that environment, which then leads to a, a rise in home values, in family incomes, in education levels of residents. It's actually not necessarily a bad thing by itself. Obviously, we all want to live in a better neighborhood. Well, people want to live in a better neighborhood. They want the value of their property to go up because that means they're getting a better return on their investment. However, it's it becomes a bad thing when the investment, when the building up of that community excludes the people who are living there already. So a common consequence of gentrification is the displacement of existing residents due to things like uh, rising rents and those increased property values and the higher taxes that come with that and making it unaffordable to live there. In many cases, the people who are displaced are older, they're less educated, they're lower income, and they're, a, of course, a member of a minority population. If you think about this, renters are particularly vulnerable to those neighborhood changes because I think when people hear about this, they assume that the people being pushed out own the land that they're being pushed out from, right? Which is kind of a, it's an assumption that I made when I was thinking about this and talking about this. Like, why would it be bad to have your house sold to somebody who then, you know, improves the neighborhood and sells it to somebody else? Like you, I still made money because I sold my house. But you have to consider the fact that it could be that people are renting that house or it could happen in a, uh, in a block with a lot of apartments in it where it doesn't matter how much money you sink into the house, right? You don't get any return on that because you can't actually afford to buy the house. You have to rent. They're usually, these renters are usually either priced out or evicted when the buildings are sold or redeveloped and turned into, say, a luxury condominium. Even if you are a homeowner and you do take advantage of the rising real estate prices to sell out a profit, a lot of the people often run into other problems such as um, finding that their housing opportunities are limited and that they need to relocate outside of the neighborhood because the neighborhood that they were in is now too expensive for even the money that they made on the sale of their house they usually then have to move to another economically disadvantaged area, some place where they can't afford to live. Because what's happening is the places where they were comfortable, where they could afford to live, that weren't as bad as these other places, those places that they were originally in are now being bought and outpriced. So then they move to places that are not being bought up and renovated and outpriced. And that usually is going to be next to some place, say, like a refinery, uh, like an undesirable location next to the highway or a place that has a higher crime rate. I mean, of course, these all fold together and impact each other. Commercial businesses are also impacted by this. They're forced to relocate or close again due to rent in the buildings that they're in because they're more desirable locations now, so the landlord can charge more. Or pressure from new competitors like large chain businesses uh, that cater to higher income individuals. You actually see this across the nation with Walmart. It's a type, a area of gentrification when a Walmart moves into a small community and basically outprices the mom and pop store 
and drives them out of business because mom and pop can't buy things at the same levels that Walmart can, for example. Being displaced like that, being forced to move out, it can lead to long-term health problems. So people who are forced to relocate might lose their social network, their support network of friends and family who help them when they're in trouble, who can get over to their house because they only live a couple blocks away, who can be there immediately, which of course spikes stress, which of course negatively impacts your mental health, your physical health. Those who can afford to move to another neighborhood, like I said, they often end up in a place with higher crime rates, uh, lower quality schools, lack of transportation options, and that exposure to environmental hazards. Uh, research conducted by the CDC actually has shown that populations displaced by gentrification face health risks such as higher infant mortality, lower life expectancy, and increased incidence of asthma, diabetes, heart disease, cancer. That's not to say that there isn't a right way to do this, that there isn't a proper way to increase the value of a neighborhood, but there is definitely a wrong way to do it. And usually poor people and especially poor people of color end up paying the price for those. It's just one more way in which systemically disadvantaged populations continue to be disadvantaged and collected into pockets of disadvantage as the gap between them and those with more advantage just continues to grow and continues to grow. Right. I think that brings us to our conclusion, which we'll try to perk up a little for y'all. <laughs> I promise there's good news at the end if you just hold on. Yeah. So we've talked about it several times. Historic practices have modern consequences. We can't just say that this all happened in the past and not understand why it still has carryovers into today for, especially for minority communities. These systemically racist systems have grown out of systems that were once explicitly and overtly and proudly racist. The 1938 Hulk categories are strongly correlated with contemporary neighborhood poverty and racialized economic segregation highlights the dependence on the preceding conditions in shaping the experiences and opportunities of populations. Opportunities of populations are shaped by the places they live. And we still see the carryovers from those 1938 maps in people's yeah. opportunity today. A, a 2018 study by the NCRC found that three out of four neighborhoods marked hazardous by Hulk surveyors in the 1930s are still struggling economically. Three out of four are still struggling economically with lower incomes, higher proportions of minority residents. The, in, the economic outcomes for Black and Hispanic families residing in these areas of disadvantage, these disinvested areas, are often stunted by lower incomes, fewer businesses, and fewer opportunities to build wealth. Right. And so we've kind of tried to, to draw that, that line for you to show you where these things came from. We started talking about explicitly <laughs> discriminatory practices by the U.S. government when it comes to our indigenous population, when it comes to former slaves and how they were treated and how they were forced and made to move. Otherwise they would be, you know, end up back in jail or otherwise not free. 
we tried to bring that all together and show you some of the outcomes of these situations from health and education to policing to low wages and and gentrification and how that impacts somebody. I think I want to I just want to cover a couple of things that I found. There are solutions for for things like gentrification, for things like discrimination based on location and people who have a stake in this, who have a dog in this fight, if you will, they can promote revitalization, for example, to benefit broader communities. Gentrification, like I said, can happen in a way that includes the people that actually live there. And you can do this with partnerships between banks and community-based organizations to encourage equitable development, uh, limited equity co-ops and community land trusts, providing existing tenants with the right of first refusal in apartment conversions, coupled with low-income and first-time buyer financing programs, inclusionary zoning regulations, split tax rates for incumbent residents of gentrifying neighborhoods. HUD has a program called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, say that five times fast, and it's a process that provides an opportunity for community groups to engage with municipal leadership in the planning process. AFFH, because I'm not going to say it again, provides a mechanism for identifying areas that are vulnerable to or maybe even already in the early stages of gentrification. Uh, Community groups can then work to develop strategies to avoid displacement of incumbent residents by attracting investments and providing affordable housing. Large and small local banks can also play a role supporting the development of housing and finance options that accommodate the retention of low and moderate income families in the community rather than excluding them, right? Bank regulators should look at these small local and large uh, banks as they use these pro-integrative financing options and credit them through the Community Reinvestment Act and recognize them through that. The AFFH that I was talking about earlier should also be eligible for that. It's essential that programs promoting the economic prosperity of incumbent residents, of the people who live there, who would suffer from gentrifying neighborhoods, be discussed on the public evaluations released subsequent to a CRA exam. Basically, we can create programs and methods and policies that work with the people in a specific location to provide them the benefits of that location being invested in without driving them out of that location, which would go a long way towards addressing a lot of these problems that we're seeing that we talked about already today. So we've got some good news to close out the podcast with, but before we get to that, uh, I would ask you if you enjoy what we're doing, if you like these podcasts, please, please rate and review, because if you don't, the algorithms will not suggest our podcast to new listeners. We absolutely have to have reviews, especially in iTunes, to let this grab attention from people. We put a lot of work into this. We would love to have more people to talk back and give us information and ideas. So please, please, whatever podcasting platform that you listen on, uh, rate and review. Thank you very much. And Robin, you want to cover the good news? I'll let you be the bearer of good news. Oh, and it is such good news. So on July 9th, 2020, the Supreme Court in McGirt versus Oklahoma ruled that 
land that was promised to the Creek Nation in eastern Oklahoma remains an American Indian reservation. That was a decision that had potential implications for nearly 2 million residents as one of the most significant victories for tribal rights in years. The land in question was promised to the Creek Nation in return for moving out of their ancestral lands in what is now northeastern Alabama. It's important to note that that was not a willing relocation. It was part of the Indian removal um, when the Creek, the Seminole, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Cherokee were all forced westward on the Trail of Tears by the U.S. Army. If you would like your heart broken repeatedly, do a lot of research on that. And so in his opinion, Justice Neil Gorsuch sided with the liberal justices, which was actually quite a big deal, saying, if Congress wishes to withdraw its promises, it must say so. Unlawful acts performed long enough and with sufficient vigor are never enough to amend the law. To hold otherwise would be to elevate the most brazen and long-standing injustices over the law, both rewarding wrong and failing those in the right. It's a timely reminder, I think, that just because we've been doing things wrong or doing things a certain way in the United States doesn't mean that it's necessarily the right way to continue to do things. Um, We should never be too proud to evaluate our actions as a nation, and we should never be too proud to uh, stand for justice and to keep the promises that we have made, even if it goes against popular opinion. We want to thank you all for listening to our second full episode. We really appreciate any feedback that you give us honestly we work a lot to get these things pulled together (laughs) i don't think we i don't think either of us understood uh what we were getting into for the uh for the naivete of john and robin of a month ago thinking we could do these in like an hour so thank you very much we will have another episode up in two weeks we will talk to you then if you have any thoughts you can reach us at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. We would absolutely love to hear from you, even if it's just, hey, I enjoyed that. I mean, especially if that's what you send us, I think that would be great. But if you have something you want us to talk about, if you have a question about something we covered, if you have a piece of information that we missed or that we got wrong, please let us know. We will gladly, gladly look at that. We are not too proud to admit when we are wrong. <laughs> and we welcome you to find us on Facebook as well. If email's not your gig, uh, Fireside Breakdowns on Facebook, we should be pretty easy to find. And we'll, uh, we'll be sharing some of the resources that we talked about tonight and some resources that are relevant to our next episode. Again, thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.